0: Hello, my name is Jessie kendall and I'm a PhD student at UC Santa Cruz studying sleep and neuroscience in marine mammals, including seals and dolphins. I'm also an artist, and I create illustrations, animations, children's books, and infographics to communicate my own science as well as the science of others. I recently completed a project that's really close to my heart, along with other UCSC students named Paloma Medina and Audrey Ford. It retells the story of finding Nemo through a true biological lens, where when Coral dies, Marlin transitions to Marla, a female who must discover motherhood. Marla does this by seeking the advice of many marine creatures who approach parenthood in very different ways. We created the book through multiple workshops with queer and transgender youth in Watsonville and Santa Cruz County, And we have received support from many local organizations, such as the Norris Center for Natural History, the Science and Justice Research Center, and the Arts Council of Santa Cruz. We started a Kickstarter to support this project to offset the cost of printing and its distribution, including book readings and shipping costs. Please help us share Marla's story by donating to Looking for Marla on Kickstarter to help bring this story to a broader community. Thank you.
1: Thank you for sending that in, Jesse. I was at a local brewery a couple weeks ago and I met this sweet girl and she told me about the project that she was doing. I said, hey, that sounds cool. You should record a voice memo and send it in. And that is what she did. Uh, So I will link to their project in the link below if that interests any of you. Guys, I also just updated my website. Um, I added Stuff I Love to the website. So that's my podcast gear. Um, I get so many emails from people People who want to know what my podcast setup is. So I decided to just add all the gear individually. Uh, And I'm an Amazon affiliate. So if you buy it through my website, um, I'll get a small percentage of that purchase. Additionally, I have the books that I love and I have my travel kit. So on the travel kit, like one of the items right there that I'm looking at is called the Brazen Morph Trek Foam Roller. It's a collapsible foam roller that I will take on all my trips with me, and then make love to it in the morning. Make love to it with my my IT bands and my 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 ankles. God, I was on this surf trip recently, and um, I fell on a wave, and my ankle seized up, and it wouldn't uncramp for. 10 minutes and it felt like it felt debilitating if it it, it, i i was trying to and i broke my board i was trying to swim in it was a frightening little moment there so i clearly need more work on the brazen morph Trek foam roller uh they don't even sponsor this podcast but they're part they're part of the amazon affiliate page so Buy all your stuff through my website, kyle.surf, click the Amazon link, bookmark it, and we'll probably make Amazon go bankrupt within the next couple months. It's it's really only a matter of time. Uh, I just got back from Mexico, as I mentioned, one of the best trips of my life. Got uh, for a week straight. And uh, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Santa Cruz Medicinals because I was using their um, CBD pain cream nightly. I was lathering it up on my shoulders, my back, and uh, it works really, really well. Um, So thank you guys for sending me CBD cream and uh, allowing me to use it. It's it's working great for surf trips. Um, And if you guys want. CBD stuff, um, you can go over to scmedicinals.com, get any of their products, um, and type in KYLE10, all caps, and you'll get 10% off their CBD cream um, or their nootropics. They just came out with some CBD-infused nootropics. Um, I just took some. It's got 5-HTP, alpha-GPC. It's got forskolin. All this stuff that uh, my buddy Brendan Rue, the scientist, the CEO, put in to make uh, the best nootropic out there. I don't know if it's the best nootropic out there. I can't actually speak to that, but uh, all their stuff seems to be working really well, and if you want it at a discount, you should go to their website, scmedicinals.com, to get it. Uh, this episode of the podcast is with Malcolm Fleshlinger. Did I say that right, Malcolm? I'm sorry, you're, ba- you're, you're Fleshner, Fleshlight? Malcolm Fleshlight? Uh, Malcolm is a uh, he's a producer at... He's an executive producer at The Young Turks. The Young Turks is the largest online news show in the world. It serves as the flagship program for The Young Turks Network, a multi-channel network of associated web series focusing on news and current events. Malcolm is tack sharp Uh, he's hilarious he was a humor columnist for 15 years prior to working with the Young Turks so he's got that beat that musicality that all the funny people do Um, and it was an intellectually stimulating conversation Um, and he's just a great dude who was introduced to me by my friend Chris Ryan Um, And before we get it going, I also wanted to thank Mudwater, because you guys are the best, and I'm drinking your stuff right now. You hear that? That's a tin can of Mudwater that is almost empty, and uh, on the side of it, it says it has masala chai, cacao, reishi, chaga, cordyceps, lion's mane, turmeric, sea salt, and cinnamon, one-seventh the amount of caffeine as coffee. And right now, I'm not even drinking any coffee. Going. Going solely tober on the coffee front, and you know what I'm gonna do with this tin can? I have a bunch of wax. I'm a surf wax. I'm gonna melt it into the into this can with a little wick on the end of it. I'm gonna make a candle, and then I'm gonna seduce my girlfriend with it because no women c- can resist sex wax melted into the tin can of mud water. And if you go to mudwtr.com right now and type in the code name KYLE10, also all caps, you can get $10 off your subscription at Mudwater. You can cancel any time. And it is one of the most outstanding beverages I've ever tasted. Drinking it right now. And I added a little bit of honey. I blended it. I emulsified that bitch. And uh, I think it's great. So uh, we're going to get this podcast rocking and rolling. If any of you guys want to send me voice memos, just let me know who you are, where you're listening from, little details about where you are in the moment right now. You can send it over to info at kyle.surf. And if you want to get on my email list where I just inundate your your, your inbox like five times a day with self-indulgent nothingness, you can go over to my website, kyle.surf. Just kidding. I only send out an email like once a month, maybe once every two weeks. And I I really focus on them. I make sure that if I'm going to send it off, it needed to be sent. You know that? It's not a perfunctory email like some of these other podcasts. They're well thought out. I send you the best books I've been reading, podcasts I've been listening to, quotes I've been pondering, and you can get it all at kyle.surf. And with that, please welcome to the show, my friend, Malcolm Fleshlinger. Fleshner. God, I'm so sorry, Malcolm. Malcolm Fleshner, Fleshner, Fleshlight. Enjoy the show, guys. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure
2: until you get lost in Tijuana.
1: You get caught inside by a giant wave. And you feel really alone.
2: I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen, and that being my job. Hey. Hey.
1: Standing at a Three. desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. thumbs up. Welcome to the show. pretty <laughs> <hard> good. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Yeah, uh, yeah. You you learn a few things uh, in LA v- very quickly. Uh, and and one that I learned is that if you want to make something happen with someone, you you make their dream happen.
3: Yeah, there you go. the The other is to kidnap their dog. Yes. And you know, but you have to you have to return the dog unharmed when they do what you say because then you get a bad reputation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you don't, yeah, mafia style. <laughs> you have to make good on your promises. what the the interesting thing about your experiences in LA, where you're couch surfing and so on, the, there's actually a, a culture of that. You know, where people opening up their back houses to other people who are aspiring, and it's like we were talking about earlier at the coffee shop about how the surf culture, you know, there's a, it's unspoken and no, nobody's written down and nobody's policing it, you know, with actual guns or, you know, whistles or anything. But in LA, there's a culture of, you know, I was, people helped me along and now I made it and I have a back house. And that's why Cato Calen was in O.J. Simpson's back house when O.J. Simpson did not murder his wife.
1: Right. Well, they, they, it always makes the rap videos better when they can say I came from Biggie, biggie remember when i let you sleep on the couch <laughs> yeah. uh i feel like that's the more intelligent way to go about it though because i see people who have quote unquote made it in la and they have a bunch of money but they just spend it all like they feel this obligation to just spend boku bucks on all of this stuff and i wonder if they're putting much of it away uh so I would like to to sleep on the couches for as long as possible and, and save my money.
3: That's a that's admirable of you, and I am gonna take uh, take comfort knowing that if, if I ever have all that that kind of money, I'm I'm <laughs> yes. not gonna you know right now I'm I'm trying I'm like no no, no whipped cream on the mocha. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to save up. Yes. <laughs> save but it's nice. Of you, it's nice of you to concern yourself with the. The fortunes of the fortunate
1: yeah yeah exactly are you okay I mean you've made a lot of money but you're this this garden that and uh, the swimming pool that you put in I just don't know if that's financially responsible yeah I'm worried like,
3: about you I feel like the infinity pool is sort of a metaphor for you just spending your money <laughs> as if you have more than you know so yeah this is these are the people who, who who's concerned you need to be you know worrying about right so are concerns.
1: you uh did you ever consider living in la full-time or what, what were the, the decisions that went into that?
3: So, uh, I I fly down to L.A. from the Bay Area every other week, and I work for The Young Turks as a producer. And the benefit to living up here is that we, you know, uh, one of my jobs was bringing in people like Chris Ryan to come and be, you know, guests, uh, appear on panels and the, uh, the like for us. And one of the problems I have is I have difficulty saying no to people, and so. Inevitably people would come on and I would meet them and have a good time with them and you know get to know them and they would All wanted oh well I have this show on Tuesday you should come or oh I'm doing this thing you should come And if I lived in LA I would feel obligated to go to the mall and because I'm up here I can say oh I'm sorry I can't Right. and then uh, and they're like um Oh well, I'm going to be up in the Bay Area, you know, on in you know on, on May 12th, and I, I'm saying, well, I'm going to have to be in Montana. I guess so. I'm going to be in LA that one week. What do you do about that? Don't are people constantly asking you or inviting you to come to events and things that they're doing? And you know, it's nice to go out. You're young; you still want to go out and have a good time, I'm sure. But you know, I'm old. Well, not if you want to get anything done. Yeah, you realize very quickly that I, I'm heading
1: into uh, wedding age, mm-hmm. where a lot of friends are getting married, and then. Uh, I look at the schedule if I'm going to say yes to all these weddings and realize there goes my summer. So I- I'm very protective of uh, of my time. And it's for no other reason that I, that I know that I'm not going to be able to get anything done if I say yes to everyone. Um, and... Some people think I'm an asshole for it.
3: <laughs> I know it's hard, though, but who wants to go to weddings? Really? Yeah. Mm.
1: Well, I, I also think that there's, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> I did a, a podcast a couple weeks ago with a, a guy named Peter Atia, who is a very smart gentleman. Uh, and, and he mentioned this thought experiment uh, and was, was very uh, profound, which is think of um, dying, and then one year after your death, how many people will, how many people's lives will still be profoundly changed? He said, and it shows that, you know, there's maybe four or five people who be, it will be very difficult for them to move on. For the rest of the world, they will not skip a beat. Yeah. Um, and the point of the thought exercise is to get you to prioritize those uh, deep relationships more, um, which I have started to focus on a lot. You know, I, I don't, I have a lot of people who I'm I'm friendly with, but I have a few really deep, solid friends, uh, and I like to focus on on those people.
3: My my takeaway from that is to borrow as much money as possible because those right. people are really going to be affected yes. by your debt. <laughs> yeah. So, well, Louis C.K. has that whole
1: bit about like debt, and he's like, you don't need to pay it back. You could just kill yourself. Like, <laughs> there's
3: always options. Look, if you're if you know, <laughs> if you're looking for someone to base your own personal philosophy on, I think Louis C.K. is a solid choice. (laughs) Yes, yes. He's not going to lead you astray.
1: So would you consider yourself primarily a writer?
3: Well, I have been a writer for many years. I wrote a, a newspaper column for 15 years, a weekly newspaper column in my local paper in Palo Alto, California, and it was a humor column. And there's nothing gets people, like, ready to laugh like hearing the words local humorist. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, like, okay, bring the funny, I, you're going to bring the funny. So I, I have been a writer for many years, and I do still do writing as part of my job, but it's the, the newspaper, that I was complaining to you earlier about Vulture Hedge Funds and how they're killing the newspaper industry. A Vulture Hedge Fund uh, purchased the, Mercury, the San Jose Mercury News, and my column, as a result of that, was killed because they, you know, they cut back on... You know, how does a
1: Vulture Hedge Fund work?
3: Uh, well, you know, it doesn't work so well for the newspaper industry, but they, they, basically, they they come in, they they buy out the, well, it's not just for newspapers, but one of the ways they operate, and I'm, you know, you can, when, when we get Matt Taibbi back on, he can explain, it, I'm sure, better than I can, he knows these things better than I do. Taibbi, but- get
1: back here! <laughs> Give me a second chance.
3: <laughs> By the way, an aside, I heard your podcast with Chris Ryan talking about the Motherfucker Awards and how you felt uh, like uh, that gave you an entree to people like Matt Taibbi and you could sit down with him and not feel like, you know, you're on a level with him and you can feel, and I I really respect you for the way you sat down with me you were not intimidated at all. <laughs> yeah. You really were just acting like, uh, as a matter of fact, you were even looking at your watch frequently as I was talking, which yeah. I thought was, you know, really relaxed.
1: Get to the point, Malcolm. Get
3: to, yeah. So, so uh, a hedge fund, what they do is, and it's not just uh, uh, newspapers, but they'll buy up a company and they will pay themselves a, a lot of you know, high salaries. They will extract whatever the resources are and then you know, whatever they can out of that company and then leave it as a shell to die. And the way it worked with the Mercury News is though, they'll, they'll come in, they'll slash the staff. Uh, the editorial staff typically, and one of the the paper that I wrote for was owned, was part of their chain, and so they, they slashed the staff of that paper, and now it's just a shell of itself, but it is still producing, uh, you know, a, a, I don't know it, well, <laughs> it was the Palo Alto Daily News, and now it comes out on Fridays. Huh. Yeah, it's the it's the Palo Alto Daily News, and it comes out on... <laughs> on Fridays. Once a week, yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I find that uh, amusing, but yeah. So I was one of the uh, the the, right. the heads that rolled. What an
1: interesting business model, though. I, I uh, you know, one of the the arguments that you know uh, libertarians make uh, many times around around environmental issues, which I, you know, will will point out. You know, if there's no regulation, what happens to you know the air and the water and the trees and all that stuff? They uh, said, well, you know, if the, if these businesses owned the resources, they wouldn't be likely to extract the resources to the point of of destruction. They would be incentivized to, uh, to um, regenerate that resource because they would lose money. But as you're talking about the uh, extractive model of a vulture hedge fund, people could make money in the short term and then just sell it off. They're not going to necessarily be be stuck with it long term. No, I don't know if that metaphor
3: necessarily makes I, makes sense, but with capitalism in general, the the uh, you know like as as a resource gets exploited more and more and becomes uh, you know more rare, it becomes more valuable and more expensive, and so the incentive is to continue, which is why we are going to at some point, not too distant future, have zero fish in the ocean, and that's I mean you know that's not optimistic you know maybe that won't happen but that if we follow the the business model of capitalism traditionally there there is no when you mentioned libertarianism i I once i was like what is the libertarian solution to climate change because i think one of the real problems with addressing climate change is that you you need to have a collective solution that you know countries all around the world have to come together with a solution to address it and that's anathema to the you know the, the capitalists and the business community who see, see the world as you know, inherently competitive everyone's got to compete for these resources and uh, may the best man or company whatever win and uh, so I looked online and uh, one of the message boards that I, I found that the, the I don't know who he was but he, he was talking about the thing that look just because I inherited an earth that was inhabitable for you know and, and could you know, sustain human life, doesn't mean that future generations are owed that. Why do I owe that to them? Like you know, so I got mine and you get yours. That's our whole. And I was like, that's. I mean, it's honest. <laughs> yeah. But if you honesty, <laughs> it's not a great long-term plan uh, for you know sustaining you know, human life. But if you're looking to you know eliminate human life, that's actually pretty yeah, you solid. make a
1: lot of money and Lip- get get some infinity <laughs> in swimming pools. In the
3: interim, I, I feel bad for libertarians who aren't successful though. Because you know you you meet someone who's you know driving for Uber and they're a uh, uh, you know staunch libertarian and you know by their own you know premises that they're living by that they're not you know rising to the top right uh
1: there was that documentary Sicko, by yeah, michael, michael moore. moore and and he has a a beat in it where there's a an anti Michael Moore website. Uh, run by this guy who has to close the website because his wife falls to uh, an illness and he can't pay the medical bills uh, which the irony is very thick in <laughs> right. that one uh, but yeah uh, I just want to round out the point on the vulture oh, hedge funds uh-huh. because uh, you're just uh, you're making a point there but they that they will um, basically extract all the resources from it and then
3: Sell it off. So, for example, the newspaper often owns the building that they right. operate out of. The traditionally, you know, Chicago Tribune or the L.A. Times, and that's a, a a fixed asset that's worth something. So, the vulture hedge fund comes in. They they buy the the newspaper. They sell off the building, and you know, and then they start renting out a, f- a different facility that costs a lot less for them than all the money they made from selling the building. And then eventually, as the um, the newspaper dies, they still have all the money. So, you know, they, they extract that money from uh, and use it to pay them sal- themselves salaries or however else they uh, they put it in their own pockets. And then the business dies and they're not left holding the, the bag. It's Got just it. all the employees who are out of a job. So what was your uh, column about? It was whatever I wanted. To, it was a humor column, a standard humor column. I, I grew up uh, admiring Dave Barry. I don't know if you know who Dave Barry is, but he's the premier american humor columnist in the you know the started in the i guess the 80s 90s and you know the height of the newspaper era in the late 20th century and he was you know the pulitzer prize winner he wrote columns that the uh, or his column was syndicated in hundreds of papers i'm sure and i wanted to be the next Dave barry and so i i tried to get syndicated and i got a couple of other papers to uh, but to carry my column but what i realized <laughs> was that uh uh, not only was I not going to be the next Dave Barry there was not going to be another Dave Barry <laughs> because the newspaper the newspapers are just not, they don't carry humor, you know, who's a humor columnist anymore, there aren't humor columnists anywhere n- anymore like there used to be like Irma Bombeck and Dave Barry and Art Buckwald and these people who I'm sure most right. of your listeners have never heard of but the, that was a, that was an art, that was a legendary sort of, uh, and, and um I, he wrote a book and I went to a, a presentation of his at, a, at Kepler's bookstore in Menlo Park which is a famous bookstore here on the peninsula, and independent bookstore, and I, you know, he had a question and answer session and I, I asked him what he thought would be the future of humor columns because they're just not, there aren't any. He stopped doing his and there just aren't any anymore. And he said, well, you know, there's a, there, there's still great comedy out there. You know, TV is in a, a, a renaissance. It's like the, the, this golden era of TV comedy. And there's, you know, you know, there's all sorts of other outlets online for people to be funny. So, you know, the humor column may not survive, but, uh, um, you know, there's, there's still lots of places where you can find entertaining, humorous content. And he's right. The humor columns are dying. But I, I, I felt like it's, it's like he, uh, you know, you hear about uh, some sort of Native American tribe that, that they're, they're basket weavers. And there's only like three of them left who know this art. And know and when they die, it's going to die out. And going to one of them and saying... Uh, you know, well, what's gonna happen when when you die and there's there's no more to nobody who knows this this amazing art that has been carried on for, you know, hundreds of generations or what have you. And the person's saying to you, uh, you know, there's lots of things you can carry stuff around in. You know, so you know, the, the, you can you just get a tote bag from NPR. I mean, don't you know? you were, So <laughs> <laughs> it was an unsatisfying answer. You ever heard of the plastic bag? Yeah, <laughs> that's sure. gonna replace I us. Mean, uh, what, <laughs> let me introduce you to the concept of the backpack. <laughs> yeah. and so uh, it, but it was it was true because that's it's it is a it is a dying art. But uh, that's why I was asking you before we were, we came on air about your writing and what whether you try to write humorously and cuz writing funny is extraordinarily difficult. You don't get, you know, when you're in stand up you get to act out what you're doing, you know, you can look people in the eye, but with just the written word it's extraordinarily difficult to make people laugh and, and be funny. And uh and any number of people writing to me about my column explained to me how difficult it was and how I was not achieving it. <laughs> how unsuccessful I was and <laughs> How long was the column? It would be 800 words. Okay, And it was weekly. But, uh, I had, but that's one of the interesting things about it is I could write about whatever I wanted to. And when you write a column about gardening or about cars or whatever, by narrowing the focus, it's easier to come up with topics. My wife's an English teacher, and one of the, the lessons that she's learned or she has shared with me of teaching English is when you give writing assignments, the most difficult writing assignment you could possibly give is to say, write about whatever you want yeah because then you just have the whole world you know and if you say but no write about a boy who finds a canoe in the woods and it's starting to rain you know whatever right. and then you know you you be by by limiting it that actually helps to open up the creativity have you ever read a book
1: called uh zen and the art of Motorcycle? i'm familiar with it right yeah Uh, i haven't either but i like to say (laughs) (laughs) but apparently there's a scene in it (laughs) where there's a girl who's given the assignment to write about uh her town and she says well my town's so boring there's nothing worth writing about so the teacher narrows the focus of it and says write about this one big wall uh and and she comes back with, you know, 10,000 words on this this specific wall. Um, and I agree with you. Yeah, it's, it is uh, easier when you make it more specific. That's what we did with the comedians at the Motherfucker Awards. We gave them facts about a specific right. company and said, hey, make this funny. Um,
3: and they succeeded, by the way. I attended oh, the you. Motherfucker Awards. I was there. I, I helped some behind the scenes, you know, very minimally, but I, I did contribute. So I felt a, a vested interest in it. Wanted to congratulate you on the successes, as I was you know intimating before our conversation. I n- knowing both you and Chris, because I'm friendly with Chris Ryan. Also I'm dropping names. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that, but that's why you came. You guys came to me to ask me about to, for help, but. Uh, knowing that the two of you and this this kind of idea that a couple of people just sitting you know in a in a van smoking smoking pot and like oh we should we should totally do that dude we should totally do that and you have no Experience running awards shows or putting on events, and Chris's participation in this was uh, strictly as a figurehead, as far as I can tell. (laughs) And like, you know, he would write the occasional introductory email for you. Like, I mean, I know he was on stage with you, but uh, let's let's be honest about who did the heavy lifting here. Um, But with his back, you know. Um, But but anyway, he lets me stand on his shoulders, so that's why his back hurts so much. So, uh, but going into it, uh, I I was a little. I I invited a couple people to come with me, and I was sort of not sure whether i should because i was like look this could be a complete shit show i gotta be honest with you <laughs> these guys don't know what the fuck they're doing and they got all these big name people and you know I, this could be a disaster you know let's go and hope we're gonna have a great time but let's enjoy it even if it's a train uh, wreck hey, just bring some whiskey and a water bottle just in case <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, and you know like be able to monitor where the 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 exits are you yeah. know, we, we it, it this could go full on fire festival <laughs> at a moment's notice so, but it turned out it was great it was a wonderful time it was super funny the the everybody was all the comedians were great they you know i perhaps the most remarkable part of the entire event was the fact that you could get these comedians to write material and perform for free which boy good luck you know asking people in general to do things for free but comedians to write material and perform it for you and not get paid well I, we paid them a little bit
1: but they could have been they could have made more money it was a a, a gesture more than anything right uh, yeah a uh,
3: just a pro forma uh, you know
1: they weren't paying their bills for their santa monica houses <laughs> and also when, the, when you the say the check that
3: we were, checks we we're cutting so don't don't try to cash this for about 2 weeks <laughs> yes um the uh, especially you who talked about what a motherfucker that bank was? Yes. Yeah, they're the yeah. That's not. They're not gonna. They're not gonna honor this. Let's so, be honest.
1: So w- would your uh, humor, uh, the, your column be uh, politically charged ever? Sometimes. Or would it all be about gardening and these little snapshots no, of life? It was.
3: It was usually it was not political. Cause so I'm running for a newspaper for a general audience, and it, if you get too political, one way or the other, then it turns off. Half the audience potentially, and so you have to be careful with that. I, mean, I did. I mean, I remember I wrote a column uh, about Donald Trump and how he was uh, he was going to run the country like a business, and how what a great idea that was, you know. And and some of the things he did, you know, we, we forget. Donald Trump is just a, such a series of catastrophes, one after the other. We forget some of the things that happened in the early days of the Trump administration, but you know, uh, uh, the, he would put people in charge of a you know in charge of a department who. <laughs> like like Rick Perry he put him in charge of the energy department he couldn't he literally could not remember the energy department in a debate he was trying to think of the three departments that if he had been president he would have <laughs> he would have eliminated and he noted two of them and the third he couldn't remember and that was the department of energy and then you put him in charge cuz you're always going to want to hire somebody for an important job who has claimed, who has <laughs> gone on, on, like, you're you're going to have, you want somebody to head up your accounting department. You definitely want it to be somebody who thinks accounting is a waste of time and should be eliminated entirely. Right. And that's what Donald Trump was doing. So, you know, running running the, the company like, or the country like a business, I thought it was a comical idea. And it wasn't inherently like Trump is evil or whatever. But generally speaking, it would be lighthearted and, you know, about, you know, uh, you know, I wrote a column about how, uh, 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 why Americans don't like soccer, you know, and they, why, why the, the, and, and, I mean, I wrote hundreds of columns, but I don't know why I just thought of that one, sure. but, but you know, they would be about sports, but it would be, it wouldn't be a sports column about like, oh, well, this guy is the third most underrated interior lineman in the AFC West, you know, I mean, I, I don't, that, not like that, that's a real sports column that... I would not have any. So, what was in. the
1: premise of why uh, Americans don't like soccer?
3: Oh well, there were a number uh, of issues that we have with soccer. Uh, but you know, one of them is that you can't use your hands. <laughs> like I think Americans, you know, all of our sports you're know, you really are very hands-intensive. You know, like in baseball, you throw, you hold a bat, and that it then your hands are like these amazing evolutionary uh, uh, you know implements. And to say, okay. Now you can't use them. It, it just for Americans, it's like, you know, like we, we came to this country, was full of resources, yeah. and we're just going to exploit the hell out of yeah. all of them. Yeah, we... we
1: we're going we, to extract we,
3: them, we're going to cut them down, we're going to yeah. boil them away. How are you
1: going to climb the social ladder without your hands? There you How are you going to pick yourself up with, from your bootstraps without you your
3: hands? Right. And do it fiat. So, like... It, it, <laughs> For an American watching a soccer match, and the ball's coming at the guy, and like a, like he's a receiver, and then it just he just lets it hit him in the chest and die at his feet. You're like, oh, you totally could have caught that. <laughs> yes. Just catch it. Uh, and so that was another. Is just like um, American sports tend to be super regimented, and like especially football. And in soccer, like, there's a foul. The, the player, they have to go retrieve the ball themselves and put it somewhere generally in the vicinity of where the foul occurred. And then they, they, they kick it themselves. And uh, and you know can you imagine like that's that's like schoolyard football when you're playing as a kid and you know where's the scrim- where's the line of scrimmage where did you get you know tackled in tag game of tag football you put the ball down and then the other team's like no no they kick it up a little bit and you kick it back but that and you know they avoid that in professional and college football or because they got eighteen different officials who are gonna know and they bring out that chain you know measure exactly by inches like like give me that close but soccer is just much more fluid
1: right like a, a, an athlete who's getting paid a hundred million dollars is gonna go get the ball <laughs> yeah. Yeah, self. Right. Hey, you don't see Roger Federer going and getting the tennis ball. <laughs> He's got those little, little gnomes that run around uh, the the tennis court and do
3: that. Is that what they are? Is they're, are they're gnomes? They're no- I, I always wondered about that. They're very good. Uh, they're, are they raised for that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. So that, that, But that. Yeah. Sure. Um, so
1: d- did you get any? Uh, I would imagine that you learned a lot about writing and groomed your skill uh, quite a bit over those 15 years. Did you get any uh, great advice that stuck with you, or any any lessons learned about? humor writing that you continuously come back to
3: well you and I were talking earlier about editors and one of the things is a good editor uh, they, they tend to want to put the cut the jokes in the humor writing because that's what's extraneous and they oh we got to cut 50 words out of this and they just cut all the jokes I'm like now it's just a terrible column right <laughs> about nothing um, but uh, generally you know uh, the rule of threes is very important and you you put the funny part at the end you know sometimes when you're writing something uh, the way you should write it, would be to put this item first of the three, but if you're going to make it funny, you have to put that one third, and then your editor will be like, shouldn't that go first? And you're like, yeah, but if it's going to be funny. But uh, another, uh, one rule that uh, that I I think is really, uh, I've learned about comedy or humor in general, is to, uh, if you when you're describing certain things, if you can create a buffer in between what you're saying and the audience's uh, understanding of it so it forces them to make an interpretation or make that jump in their head, that is going to be much funnier than if you just lay it out for them. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. Uh, Generally speaking, if you say, oh, I haven't, you know, oh my God, I haven't, uh, uh, you know, I don't think he took. he's taken a shower since, and you want to say a long time ago, you don't say the 1970s, you say since the Carter administration. And then it makes the person in their head say the Carter administration, how long ago, that was the 1970s, that's funny. Or if you want to say, uh, uh, there, you know, uh, recently I was asked to do something at, at the Young Turks, uh, you know, on a panel at the last minute, they, they needed me, and uh, I was joking about it and saying that they, uh, they were just looking for someone, and I—you I, could have said they're just looking for someone with a pulse, or just someone who, uh, uh, you know, is, is breathing. But instead, I, I, I like to put it as they were just looking for anybody who could fog a mirror, and then it forces the audience, the person, to think, "What is that? What is he talking about? Fog a mirror?" And then you have to visualize oh, someone who's a, live, someone yeah. putting a mirror up to right. somebody's mouth. And I'm not saying these things because I think the audience is going to laugh hysterically at them. I'm just using them as examples of where you can, uh, but you can't go too far because they like like say it in a foreign language and make them go look up what it means in the in the dictionary that's not going to work but uh so but there, it's more just about writing in general and, and tight tightening up your writing and and not, no extra words no uh don't waste people's time when they're reading something because especially nowadays uh, getting people to read anything that's longer than a tweet is uh, a tall order. So, well, I it, thought that you know when you
1: were talking about this uh, guy that you you Dave respected, Barry. Dar- Dave Barry. What I thought he was going to say was, "Well, there's this new social media app, and apparently people are making comedic memes. So maybe that's what humor column- columnists are going to." I and I don't uh, want to discount towards- memes.
3: Memes are very funny. They're you are know, very the funny. Meme culture and uh, gifts have created a whole new outlet for. Comedy or for humor that did not exist before, and I know we disparage the modern era and oh, you know the with texting and you know everyone's shortening, it, abbreviating everything, but that is a, a humor form. And when you respond with a particularly pointed GIF, that that there's an art to that. Yeah, and uh, and some people are better at it than others.
1: Even the comedic uh, comment on you know one of those GIFs, like there's this uh, account that I follow called Kook Slams. Uh, and it's just people eating shit on the beach or in the ocean, Um, and there are these horrible videos that will make you... Is that
3: metaphoric, or are you talking literally? what, What do you mean? Eating shit eating on the sh- beach? No, they're
1: not literally eating okay. shit on the beach. No, it's not like two girls one cup, <laughs> two girls one beach. Uh, no, it's no, it's like people kite surfing and getting thrown into a okay. cliff That's or, what you, or mean. you know okay. fa- falling on a big wave or right. something like that. But then there are what it, it seem like competitions for the funniest comment. Like there was yeah. one yesterday of that I I was just killing me. It was a, uh, a kite surfer that just gets lift up, lifted up and then plummeted into the beach and uh, I think there was a comment that had like th- a thousand uh, likes on it that said um, what is it it was it uh what was what was the Jesus? Geez- God, I'm I'm just totally blanking on the, the on the punchline here. It was like he has lift, or he has he has risen. Oh, he has risen. <laughs> he has yeah. risen. Okay, there you go. It was he has it risen.
3: But it was on Easter, probably. Or yes, something it like was that. on Easter. There yes, this is what it was. Um, see, make the make the audience make the connection. Right. <laughs> Ex- right. Yeah, I had to figure that out. Well, I can see why you would find people. Uh, eating shit while kite surfing. Hilarious right. these days, I mean, because that's, you know, that's right. How's your, uh, how's your, this, is there major scarring or what's oh, the, Oh yeah, there's a big from? scar right there. And how is it, you're in, you're fully recovered?
1: It's, uh, I would say I'm about 70%. I'm getting there. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, they, they, do you know that the nice thing about uh, injuries are like this is that that they get you really into your fitness. Like they they force you to focus on it. Like for for me now, I've gotten into CrossFit. I was never into CrossFit before I broke my arm. Now I, I'm part of that full community. Like this morning, I I was doing the uh, the barbells. You know where you like you lift it up and you put it over yeah. your head and. Mm-hmm. Then, and then apparently you drop it, which they were trying to, because I'm really new to CrossFit, and they were explaining to me, that like, no, you lift it up over your head, and then you don't just try and set it down. You, like, drop it, you know, and then there's a... But it seems like there's something that you, like, you shouldn't be able to do that. You shouldn't be able to drop the equipment at that velocity. So I kept, like, sort of placing it down and then messing myself up. Uh, anyway, uh, that, that was a strange. So you're learning like, that
3: CrossFit is not I'm just good exercise; it's also an aggressive, hostile activity that you engage in. Uh, you take it out on the equipment.
1: Exactly. That's 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 the point. That so I was when to you
3: when you had a cast on your like was it right up in. to your up to your shoulder or was no it?
1: just just on the the
3: wrist up to the and elbow. W- so did you have the full atrophy. Once it was, I
1: still have the atrophy. Yeah, I I feel like I have the wrist of a twelve it's year old so girl. So
3: creepy when yeah. you get that cast off and you just you you look like you, you're uh, well, if it's your upper arm, you look like you got Popeyes, you know, upper arms. But like yeah, yeah like you you just. Somehow they transplanted just the forearm of a refugee, you know, or someone from a concentration camp onto you, but otherwise you're normal. <laughs> nice. It's just yeah. it, And it's very, it's. Cr- I mean, like you can't wait to get that thing off because it's so itchy and yeah. You, 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 like, if, I don't know how what you did about itching, but like you, you take a wire hanger and just like you're working it. They tell you not to do that, but good luck.
1: You know, with uh, surgeries on on broken arms, they take the cast off relatively soon after the surgery because it's the philosophy of you know if you don't use it, you lose it. So I only had my cast on for something like 10 days, and then they put me in a standard wrist guard that I could take off uh, pretty quickly. But it's been a long road, uh, but I am happy to say I'm back in the water, which feels good.
3: I, I, mean, I listened to the podcast you did with Chris Ryan where you were talking about the experience and uh, and you know letting go and when you when you should let go and when you should hang on. That's
1: what I was trying to say about the, the crossfit thing with the barbell. <laughs> like you, you let go of it and I have yet to learn. It's like going when, when you go out uh, you know on a rope swing and then you're supposed to drop at a certain point mm-hmm. into the lake. I'm the kind of guy who won't drop at the right point and then I'll drop back when I hit the cliff.
3: Yeah yeah, that's that's a different uh, lesson in when you're supposed to let go. Uh, I, I find it interesting that you talked about how the reason why you got the injury in the first place was because you didn't uh, know when to let go. And now even in the way you're supposed to recover from the injury, you can't it's, let go. Yes. This is a—we're this, we're, this we're breaking some real ground here, Kyle. <laughs> Thanks. This is,
1: therapist, Malcolm. <laughs> this is good. Uh, so you were doing the comedy, uh, the, the humor column for a number of years, and then you go from there to The Young Turks.
3: So uh, The Young Turks— if, for those who don't know, is an online news show. It's the largest online news show in the world. It's strictly progressive news, and we do a daily show, and then we have other shows, the uh, ancillary shows to that. And it started, uh, the, guy, the host is a guy named Cenk Uger and he started doing the show, uh, I think, on the radio or on like Air America in 2002, uh, something like that. Yeah, in the lead-up to the Iraq War. And... I but I and I didn't get involved in uh, TY till 2010, I think, but that was when it had taken off on YouTube, uh, much more so. And but he and I had both I met him many years earlier, and actually in the mid to late 90s, when the two of us both did cable access talk shows in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, He did his called The Young Turk. And he, it was just him, he would come on the set with a stack of newspaper columns, and he would just rant. And he was conservative back then, and now he's a progressive, which is weird. So I knew him, and then I did my show, which was a talk show oriented at the Generation X. People used to talk about Generation X. We don't exist anymore. But back when, when you were much younger, we were, we were the millennials of our day. People were complaining about how we were lazy, and we didn't you know, have the right values, and we were ruining everything, and we ate too much avocado toast. No, wait, we, we didn't get that one. We didn't get that one. I don't think there was avocado toast yet. But, so I did a show that was oriented for, towards 20-somethings, and I called it Idle Exchange, except X, Exchange is spelled X-Change, and uh, that was my little play on words. Also because my director at the time didn't approve of my initial you know, suggestion for the title, which was The Young and the Listless. Which is a, a play on the soap opera *The Young and the Restless*, which is no longer exists. So also, your audience is not going to know what that is either. But the point is that that's when I met him, and then I reconnected with him, many, you know, a number of years later, and got involved in the Young Turks, doing a show called *The Point*, which was uh, funded by YouTube, and it was a weekly panel discussion show that, and that's how I would be bringing in all these guests outside who would then, you know, in- invite me to their various events. But one of whom was Chris Ryan, and he came on, and he did a uh, he guest-hosted the show for us, and we had uh, uh, Nina Hartley on that panel, who was a legendary porn, pornographic actress, adult film star from the, the 80s, and uh, a couple of other people. And they talked about the, the porn industry a great deal, and it was phenomenally successful because we had porn in the title. We had, like, a, a, I think well over a million views, because uh, it was porn in the title. And then, but if you go, you can go to the analytics of a YouTube, I don't know if you know what this, what this is, anything about this, this may be inside stuff, but YouTube video, you can go to the analytics of your, your video and watch, and one of the things you can look at is watch time, and there's, there's a little graph to show how long people stayed, because people inevitably, they don't watch the whole video, and it's an hour long uh, interview that he did or, or conversation that he had. and <laughs> and the drop off after the first second, when people would clicked on this video, and then it's, Chris <laughs> it's supposed to be porn. Talking. It's Chris Ryan, you know, sitting around a table <laughs> talking to these these three women, uh, and and uh, so we had the, our view count was in it was astronomical, but our watch time was nothing. Yeah, Chris, and, Chris has a great face for podcasting. <laughs> he's a very attractive man. He's a, he, he when I was on his podcast, a very attractive voice. We talked about how he said that or he gets told that he looks like uh uh, philip Philip Seymour seymour hoffman yeah and i i have this this theory about when you meet people and you think that they look like celebrities or anybody when you're talking about they look like a celebrity you you don't just tell them they look like that celebrity because that as in his case is not particularly complimentary but you tell them that they look like a better looking version of that celebrity and then you're you're always okay. I mean, unless you're saying you look like you're like a better looking version of Angelina Jolie. That's a little that's a little too much. But if you say you're a better looking version of Philip Seymour Hoffman, then that can mean really good looking. Right. Uh, so I don't know. Who do you get told you look like? Anybody?
1: Uh, I had I've have had uh, Heath Ledger, uh, which is very flattering, and I've had uh, Doug from uh, the, sh- the animated show Doug. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is more honest. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I look like Doug, especially when I might grow out my my, my hair. Uh, even though it was Doug, Doug was bald. I think I'm, Doug was bald. Doug was bald. I, I was picturing Doug with an afro, uh, but I, for some reason, when I grow my my afro out, I just look a little goofier, which I think makes me look more like Doug. Hmm. Uh, Anywho, we're way off topic now. I don't know. There, I is don't there know, a topic? There is no topic. I don't think
3: there is one. But I, I do. I, but that's that's one thing that I did talk about on when I was on Chris's. podcast. So have
1: you have you always uh, been a, a progressive? Would you say? I mean, you were talked about Jenk uh, uh, going becoming more progressive later in life. Uh, how is your uh, i would say the my political awakening yeah your political awakening or the arc of uh, so I grew uh of, up, the, of uh, the way that you think about things how has that progressed and and were there any seminal moments in and and shifts for you
3: in the way that you think about the world and and how we can make it better uh well the politically p- politics and then how you improve the world that's a separate issue but right. uh I mean, I grew up in a standard sort of Democrat liberal household. I was my, my I was raised as a Quaker, actually, uh, which I don't know people don't Dem- know. My grandfather was a Quaker. There you go. Yeah. And so you you know that it doesn't mean we wear, have buckle shoes and uh, you know give people oats or whatever this is the, the <laughs> common misconception or that or that the Quakers are like Amish the Quakers are not Amish but they're but Quakers tend to be very progressive and about social change and social justice and trying you know the American Friends Service Committee it's called the Society of Friends Quakers they send people all over the world to you know do improvement you know, help and uh they're committed to peace, generally speaking. So I, I was raised with those values to, to a degree, but I was a standard sort of uh, liberal Democrat. And then I actually remember literally a moment when I was watching TV. I was it was after I think I was I graduated college it was my senior year, something like that. And I uh, I was watching a TV show an interview uh, Phil Donahue was hosting between uh, Vladimir Posner and Noam Chomsky. We're talking, and Noam Chomsky, they were talking about American foreign policy, and Noam Chomsky was talking Wait, about... Wait, who's Vladimir? Bosnia? Oh, it's not important, he's, okay. he, but he, uh, uh he, <laughs> the funny thing was, Phil Donahue, who, at the time, was considered a real liberal, they were talking about the war in Bosnia, and uh, Noam Chomsky was talking about how American foreign policy is not oriented towards helping people, we don't care about the people in Bosnia, and Phil Donahue was saying, "Well, we got to do something to save those people. You know, there's there's people suffering and they're they're being killed and they're being massacred." And Noam Chomsky saying, "Well, you know, we can talk about what needs to be done to help those people, but American the American military is not a solution to anybody's problems." And the notion to me at the time that. The United States was not a beacon of democracy. Was not pursuing democracy around the world, whether in Central America or in Vietnam or the places that we had you know, all you know anywhere around the world where we've been in you know intervened. That we weren't didn't really care about the people there, and we were serving as the you know the the military wing of uh, corporate America, and just. Uh, th- that blew my mind. I was like, oh my, God, is that true? And I, and so I that led me to read more Noam Chomsky and just come to a much greater awakening about how our political and economic social systems operate. And that made me much more progressive and uh, eventually led me to the, I mean, when, when I discovered that Cenk Uger, this guy who I had known as this sort of blowhard right winger, had started this online show that was about as progressive as you're going to get. And it was too progressive for, I mean, he was, he was fired from MSNBC for being too liberal. I mean, he got you know, he he was critical of Barack Obama from the left, and the uh, the people in charge at MSNBC said, you know, you 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 need to go easier on Obama, and he didn't, and so he was eased out. Um, so the to discover that he was doing it i was like wow that's great because i had i had taken to being media criticism noam chomps is involved with a group called fair fairness and accuracy and reporting which they do great work of media criticism about how the media the mainstream media corporate media being owned by the same corporations or affiliated with the you know the, the same you know they're they're, they're doing the bidders they're, they're doing the bidding of their owners like any other company and they're not the media in america is not liberal they are, if anything, sort of centrist, or they, they they serve the interests of their their owners, and so that became a, a sort of a driving force. And when I found out that he was doing this alternative media outlet, and I was like, I gotta be involved in this. So he, uh, I started you know working with them, and eventually got hired. So how does uh, the Young Turks continue to continue to stay
1: alternative with the same business model of taking on advertisers uh, while still being able to you know call out corporate america
3: well that's a, that's certainly a challenge and well for one thing we don't have advertising traditional advertising like you know on msnbc or cnn we don't that the, we're not we're not owned by viacom or comcast you know these major uh, corporations and so a lot of our revenue comes from youtube for example and we Publish our videos, and YouTube takes care of advertising. We are not—we don't have advertisers per se that we sell advertising to. YouTube does, and they place the ads, so we don't know who's advertising on our uh, uh, our videos. And uh, so we're—you know—even if we wanted to do their bidding, we wouldn't know who they are until after we see their ads. So that's, but, mm. uh, but. So it's more
1: like podcast ads, where they get the ad at the beginning, but they have uh, no say over what you're going to talk about in the episode.
3: Well, in theory, that's in theory. true even in mainstream media, that right. the just because uh, Comcast owns MSNBC, I'm sure the people who work at MSNBC would tell you that it has no impact on uh, their coverage. The fact that MSNBC virtually never talks about net neutrality, which is an issue that Comcast is very much invested in or opposing, uh, that's just a coincidence. It, you know, who are you and your conspiracy theories, Kyle? So you know the the don lemon at cnn doesn't know who his advertisers are per se but if don lemon started talking about something that uh, the advertisers uh, were unhappy about the advertisers would let cnn know and cnn would let don lemon know the the great thing about the way our you know our corporate media works is that for the most part, Don Lemon would never get that job if he were going to be saying things that the advertisers object to. So it's a, it's a, there's a filtration process. And generally speaking, it, it works pretty well to keep people from saying anything that is going to get them in trouble with the advertisers. But very occasionally, there's a glitch in the system, and someone like Cenk Uger gets on, and, they, uh, and so they have to get rid of him. Uh, Phil Donahue is another example. During the lead-up to the Iraq War... He was essentially the only anti-war voice on the mainstream news. Everybody else was, you know, uh, uh, beating the drums for war with Iraq and Saddam Hussein and WMDs, and he's a he's a bad man. He gases his own people, and so on and so forth. They got to go to war. Bill he was was having people on, say, uh, guests on, who were saying, you know, we're not really sure that they ha- we don't think they have chemical weapons. They don't have weapons of mass destruction. They have, you know, the inspectors have found nothing. And uh, even though he had the top-rated show on MSNBC at the time. The uh, powers that be, in the, you know, the executives at MSNBC felt that the network had to be seen as pro-war, so they kicked him out. They, he lost his show. Ed Schultz was on MSNBC, and when he started talking, he wanted to talk about Bernie Sanders, the late Ed Schultz. And when he started talking about Bernie Sanders, uh, then he lost his show. Ashley Banfield was another one at NBC who was was skeptical of the Iraq War. She was demoted. So these messages, the other people who work at these networks are not oblivious to these things. It's not like everybody else at MSNBC wasn't like, what happened to Phil Donahue? Wasn't he here? Didn't he have the best show? Did he, did he get sick? Or did he get another job somewhere? No, they all know what happens. And so they, uh, as, uh, as they say in the movie uh, Cool Hand Luke, they, uh, they get their mind right if they don't have it. But usually... Someone like Brian Williams never gets to that job in the first place without having demonstrated that he is going to do the bidding of the advertisers, or at least is not going to. Anything to upset the advertisers. Uh, I mean, and then when he does do things that are upsetting to people, like you know lying about his involvement or his reporting during the Iraq War, it's not because the advertisers are mad about the content. It's that it's because he is exposed personally as a as a liar or you know inflating his own role and things like that. So, with regard to the Young Turks, that's that is a challenge because as the uh, media landscape, the online media landscape uh, matures. I did some air quotes there for <laughs> those who can't hear it in my voice. Uh, YouTube, for example, is becoming much more... The advertisers are exerting much more control over content. And for now, recently, you have uh, something like... You have demonetizing, which a video, if it is, has controversial content, advertisers don't, don't want to advertise on it, so the YouTube will demonetize it. And what is the natural effect of that is that if I, as a, a YouTuber... need to make money doing my show or whatever I do, I'm going to avoid content that is controversial. And controversial means upsetting to advertisers. And that, so YouTube was a little bit of a wild west for a while. When they had advertising initially, they hadn't, people hadn't figured it out. uh, And you would have advertising on all sorts of content, even content that the advertisers probably, if they knew it was there, would not be happy about. But because this was still shaking out as a new medium, they, they didn't really, they wanted to, Gain access to that audience because it was huge and it was growing, and it's young people that the advertisers want. But, uh, and then uh, the way it works, and the way it worked is uh, CNN and other mainstream media outlets started airing, uh, they would air a segment about, did you know that this video about, you know, insert whatever horrible thing you know pedophilia or nazis or whatever it was that your product is being advertised on a video about you know that this horrible thing and then the advertisers freak out they go to YouTube and they say I don't want my my advertising on these horrible topics and YouTube responds and so just like the uh, the networks respond to advertisers and make sure they're not providing any content that is going to be upsetting to the advertisers youtube is learning not to run advertising on content that is going to upset advertisers and that has a natural chilling effect on people talking about issues like yemen or the syrian civil war uh or you know fill in the blank about whatever horrible thing that you if but reasonably i'm, I'm not <laughs> I'm not criticizing advertisers. If I if, if I work for um, uh, you know, uh, let's say uh, 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 Tide detergent, yeah, yeah, or Bounty, the quicker picker up. I don't want you know the the a video about. A bus bombing in Yemen that killed a bunch of school children. Right. I don't want you to, to be interrupt that to watch. A, a, you know, you're not going to want to. You know, you know, there's all that blood bounty would be good for cleaning up all yeah, that blood. Yeah. You know, that's a we should go out and get some. We're association hunting. game. Right. Bounty. So bounty. It totally makes sense, but genocide. That's, but that's the inherent problem with a corporate media structure, right. advertising based media structure, and it's better if the advertising is decoupled from it. Like you've got some sort of network of podcasts and advertisers. You just you you you. Uh, uh, you place ads from advertisers, and the podcasters don't know where, whose ads they're running, and the advertisers don't know which podcasts they're running on. You just place them based on how many listeners or whatever viewers they have. Uh, that's better, but inevitably, the advertisers are going to want to exert control, or the traditional media, and that's what I'm talking about: CNN and MSNBC, and those who want to—they they want to keep their advertisers. They they see the advertisers fleeing for the online. Uh, outlets and they they run so they run this art this story about how you're you're bounty running an ad you know, on this Nazi channel, uh, so that scares them back to the mainstream media. It's, I mean they're just protecting their interests. Sure.
1: So uh, there is this conflict of interest between advertisers and news. There's also a conflict of interest between uh, corporations and politicians. What are your what are your thoughts on Bernie Sanders in the 2020 election?
3: Well one of the frustrations with Bernie Sanders right now is that he's not talking about money in politics. He did talk about it in 2016 some. He's not talking about it now, which, as I keep saying, as you and I discussed beforehand, it was a fascinating conversation. Boy, I'm sorry you all missed it, but boy, do we have a... Gr- oh, I mean, really. Oh, gosh. It was right when the coffee high was coming up. <laughs> I was in my groove. <laughs> yeah, um, so uh, Bernie Sanders is not talking about money in politics, but that money in politics is the sort of one topic that affects all others the the you know climate change why are not we doing anything about climate change well the the major industries that are the polluters own the politicians who would be the ones in a position to affect change and you know we're, we're you know raising the minimum wage well it's the major corporations that you know so all of his the, you know me, medicare for all well it's blue cross and blue shield and these you know the major hospital uh, corporations and the the health insurance industry i mean it, the medicare for all would eliminate the health insurance industry and i, I find it Amusing that sort of <laughs> the pushback against Medicare for all or a single-payer system is that people, lots of people, get insurance, health insurance through their employer, and they're happy with their ins- and the people saying this tend to be well-healed media figures who have excellent health insurance and are never, you know, dealing with copays or arguing with their insurance company because I, you know, besides maybe Comcast and uh, you know the, a, a couple other really egregious companies. Uh, the health insurance companies have to be among the most detested. Anybody who has health insurance. So, But there's this perception among elites that people love their health insurance. But if you watched Bernie Sanders, he did a town hall on Fox News, and the Fox News host, to try to, as a little gotcha moment, tried to uh, solicit the audience and said, how many of you have private health insurance right now? And a number of hands went up. And then... Uh, the, the host, who's uh, Brett Baer is his name, he thought he was going to get Bernie by saying, and now how many of you would be willing to switch over to a Medicare for all, government funded Medicare for all system? And there was wild applause and all the hands stayed up. And he wasn't expecting that because he lives in his own bubble where everybody's got great platinum health insurance. He doesn't know the experience of going and getting a medical procedure and then your insurance company saying, I'm not going to cover that. And you have to fight with them, and then you you know back and forth and back and forth, and maybe then they they finally agree to cover you know 30 percent of it, and you're you're just like, well, that's I'm just going to have to take that. But that's most people's experience. And so when you get this disconnect, it's it's funny to see these moments when the disconnect between the elite media personalities and everyday people happen. And because you know, I feel back you know, he, he thought he had him, you know, he's like, oh, I'm gonna really get Bernie on this one. And then but the idea that people are really happy with their private health insurance is uh. A fantasy. That yeah, is, that is not the experience. I don't know what. I mean. What, like, what did you do with your arm when you broke your arm? What was your situation?
1: Oh, I paid five thousand dollars, and because that was what my deductible was, and then I've Blue Cross, and then my. I think I now pay, less, upwards of I think like three hundred and ninety dollars a month. Because it went up, and they said, "Oh, well, you seem to be injury prone." So yeah. that you know, I got a, a nice letter in the mail from them that said, "You know, this is your health insurance is now going up like seventy dollars a month, uh, which is <laughs> impactful to uh, to me in a major way." And, and you are a
3: single male in your prime. Yes, you do not have a family. You don't have you. You don't have a wife and three children. You don't have a, 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 any family members who are disabled. You don't yeah. like all sorts of. You're you should be the most insurable. Yeah. The big wave surfer maybe doesn't, <laughs> but yeah, diminishes yeah it slightly.
1: Yeah. It's, it's literally insane. Uh, Matt Taibbi writes about this, uh, in his book, Griftopia, there's a whole chapter on, uh, healthcare and how, uh, 35% of all of uh, the money that goes to healthcare it goes to administrative costs right. because we don't have single payer. It's, it goes to the one part of the system that no one gives a fuck about, but it, it's the health insurance companies fighting with the hospitals. And, mm-hmm. and because you, know, you have thousands of different companies, they all use different paperwork and they all have these different systems for processing. Uh, so it's not actually going to any healthcare.
3: It's right. just going to paperwork. whereas Medicare has an overhead cost of like between one and two percent typically. I don't I, you know someone right. else else can check my numbers. but it is it's interesting that we have this system set up where uh, the health insurance companies are a major player. they, they, they take you know whatever you're saying 35 percent out of it the, and they contribute zero right I mean there's no, there's no actual contribution to providing they don't provide any health care they don't they all they, and their biz, business model we we're talking about you know capitalism before their business model is to get as much money from us the you know their uh, their customers as possible and pay out as little as possible so they, they're incentivized to deny us care and deny or deny coverage for our care. We can get as much care as we want. They're just they're incentivized to not pay for it and to fight with us and to make it, make it harder for us and, until we eventually just give up.
1: Yeah. Well, they, they, I I can tell because I have been fighting with uh my with Blue Cross uh, because they'll they you know they charged me for for items that I didn't get during my surgery. You know, and I had to go through and say, well, did I get this? Uh, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> this me- piece of me- this medicine, you know, for my surgery that you guys charged me another $400 for. And and many times I didn't, you know, and then, uh, but it takes so much work to do that.
3: I've found myself like just giving
1: up and, yeah. and then, and then thinking, will they count on this.
3: Yeah, that's part of the plan. Yeah, yeah, they're not they're not dumb. It's uh, like Wells Fargo when Wells Fargo was signing up a bunch of people who were non native English speakers for accounts that they didn't sign up for. They're counting on them not knowing. Or when the banks give out the subprime loans to relatively uh, uh, you know poorer. You know, African Americans or whoever in the you know, urban centers of America uh, to refinance their homes—they're not sophisticated enough to know what they're—you know—and most of us aren't. But they right. knew these people would be particularly easy prey, and it's that's not happenstance. That doesn't happen just by chance. So. Uh, but the, the the idea that <laughs> that this is a system people are going to be happy with, that we, we're going to be ecstatic about what you're talking about, and that we're not going to want to give that up for a system where when you get hurt, you just go, they treat you, and then you walk away and you have a bill for like $50, even if it means paying higher taxes. Uh, it, and I, I also love the um, <laughs> the criticism of single payer, like in Canada or wherever, where they say there there are these lengthy wait times, which is not true. But... Whenever someone says that, I'm like, have you ever scheduled like a dermatologist appointment? You know, like, (laughs) you are like, yeah, I've got this skin thing. It's really weird rash. I'd love to see the doctor. And the the, the person you're calling is like, um, how is, uh, can you come in on April, uh, you know, 28th? You are like, um, I don't know. That's five days from now. I kind of want to, no, I'm talking about 2026. Right. No, no, that's the, that's the soonest I have. So, I mean, wait times are endemic to our system also. And that we, we, we pretend that they're not. I, you know, the cognitive dissonance is remarkable. To say the least. But it's part of, you know, that we've been we've been trained to believe that the uh, single payer system in, that they have in every other developed uh, country in the world is uh, is somehow inferior to ours. It's I find it remarkable. It's it's uh, I like to refer to it as uh, American exceptionalism yeah. that everyone else can have g- good, cheap uh, health care with better outcomes, except us. That's that's the exceptionalism part.
1: Yeah. So do, the response to that, on the other side, is that uh, America would turn towards socialism. What is your response to that?
3: Well, I mean, we have socialism already. I mean, we have fire departments. We have social security. We have Medicare exists already for you know, however many millions of seniors. We have Medicaid. You know, socialism is already here, and we're bathing in it. It's just what is the balance that you're going to strike and. What should be a profit-making uh, venture and what shouldn't, and those are the questions that we should ask. And for many of us, and I say more people than ever, uh, doing great, uh, you know, in part at least to Bernie Sanders, are uh, people saying that the delivery of healthcare should not be a profit-making venture, that because it, <laughs> the profit is made on not delivering the healthcare, so uh, or or limiting it, and so it's it's not a it's not an area where we should you you should be uh, profiting because that introduces incentives like we're talking about that are contrary to what is the purported objective which is to provide health care to people and get me because i mean you, <laughs> there have been republican officials and who when they ask about well what are you going to do about these people they can always go to the emergency room that's not a solution that is not a good solution going to the emergency room is extraordinarily expensive for people wait and wait and wait and don't get care until they have to go to the emergency room this is not you would never design a system this way you would never start from scratch with this so uh, that's a as good an argument as I can think of for why we should look to dismantle it and change it to one that you would design from scratch.
1: Right. Well, uh, so healthcare and what are the other um, issues that you're most passionate about right now?
3: Well, I mean, as I said, I I'm uh, I really have an issue with the uh, corporate media and how corporate media exists to serve the interests of the corporations that own and fund it. So, and most people aren't aware that they most people don't pay attention to politics that much. They have their lives to lead, and that's not totally understandable. So they buy into this notion of the the liberal media. And there is an element of truth to it because the media elites tend to be in lockstep about... Uh, uh certain beliefs are common among most of the people in the media and that is to that they are fiscally conservative and socially you know liberal so they believe in you know lgbt rights and you know they're they uh, you know they're anti-sexist and they believe in racial harmony to unless it you know it affects the bottom line but they don't want to raise your, their taxes and the perception among these media, you know, New York and Washington D.C. media elites is that that's what Americans think because that's what everybody they you know, Brett Baer, as I mentioned earlier, makes eight million dollars a year or whatever. He and all his, he's on Fox News, so he's more to the right probably. But generally speaking, these people they interact with each other and they think that, and so they'll you know, you get Thomas Friedman or these writers in the New York Times writing about what uh, what the average American thinks, and the average American is actually the opposite. They more people are. Fiscally liberal, they want the you know they they want the government to do more. Uh, they be, you know social security is the most popular government program in American history, uh, but they're not as you know they're coming along on gay rights and other uh, you know social issues. But you know with abortion, like you know, the media elites tend to be very much pro-choice, but the American people uh, as a rule are less so. I think the American people overall are pro-choice, but uh, you know the media elites for the most part they they don't they want gun control. Gun control is not nearly as popular with average Americans, but so they, but they think they live in their bubble, and so they they think that everybody else believes the way they do. When in fact they're actually a really narrow sliver of the population, but they are overrepresented among the people who write opinion pieces for right. the New York Times and who you know are in charge of programming on CNN and right. NBC and so on and so forth. What do you
1: predict about the 2020 election?
3: <sighs> are we going to just
1: divulge into? T- maltov cocktails, and it's what's what's going to happen. Well, there are
3: there are <laughs> on TyT's network. There's a, a, a podcast. I do divulge wasn't the right word. No, that's all right. right. The, you, you, uh, um, it was another D word. <laughs> Deteriorate. Devolve. <laughs> Devolve. Um, that's what I was looking for. So there's a, a guy named Nick Hanauer who's a billionaire, and he writes a po- he does a podcast called Pitchfork Economics, and his the premise of his whole podcast is. We need to change the economic system in the United States, or they're going to come for us with pitchforks. And yes, yeah, so if you're looking, you know, the pitchforks and torches are uh, futures I see is very, very promising for investors. Uh, but the, I mean, predicting the 2020 election at this point is very extraordinarily difficult. We just we're recording this the day after Joe Biden announced his uh, his you know. Uh, that he's running, and we should also bear in mind that I did not think Donald Trump was going to win the general election, or that he was going to be the Republican nominee. So, as a you know, uh, my my predictive powers are very weak. I thought Scott Walker was going to be the Republican nominee, and even I think even members of Scott Walker's family don't know who he is. So <laughs> that, that's how successful he was. He was like the first person to bow out, saying, "We need to, I need to bow out so we can defeat Donald Trump." So he was an even bigger loser than I am. But He was the the governor of Wisconsin and an odious figure, but uh, so just want to put it out there that I don't know, nobody knows, and it's very hard to predict these things. And it's it's difficult to see that the Democratic Party, if they are going to pursue a more moderate, pro-corporate, Joe uh, Biden-esque approach, That they are going to be able to defeat Donald Trump, although Donald Trump is so unpopular that he might, we might, the Democrats might be able to eke out a victory over him, even with a uh, a a lackluster candidate like Joe Biden. And I don't say that because I don't care for Joe Biden. I say that because he has run and lost in humiliating fashion multiple times for the presidential. You know, he's he's run for president before and never did well and was a a, you know a gaff machine. So he, you know, if we're just going on. <laughs> predicting based on past experience, uh, he's not a great campaigner. He's not. He he should not do well. But he does have a lot of name recognition because, and there are a lot of people who still have, uh, you know, warm feelings about the Obama years, and he is associated with that. So if if you liked Obama, but you didn't like all the charisma and uh, that uh, that he was a, a you know a groundbreaking racial candidate, and that he was a his soaring rhetoric, um, if if those things you didn't like those things about Obama, but you you wish he were more gropy. Joe Biden is the is the <laughs> right. candidate for you. Uh, yeah, I <laughs> but I was <laughs> I was in uh, in LA. I was out to breakfast at a diner with, and that I frequent when I'm down there. And the, the waitress is she's very uh, fond of the Democratic Party, and she was excited about Joe Biden running, and uh, she wanted me to high five her. And I was like, you know, Joe Biden is not you know he voted for the Iraq War. He he he. Pushed the crime bill in 1994 that has been responsible for the incarceration of all, you know, levels of black and brown people in this country. He's, you know, he he represents Delaware, which is where all the. Credit card companies are incorporated, so that they can. And he he did not believe in forgiving student loans. You know, he he fought to make it so that uh, you couldn't uh, declare bankruptcy to get out of student loans. I mean, he's he's had terrible stances on any number of. Uh, uh, you know, there's Anita Hill. I mean, he's he's terrible, and I don't think that he knows how terrible he is because he probably has people surrounding him who are blowing smoke up his ass, just like Hillary Clinton did, and she still doesn't under. She still thinks she lost because of Russia and not because a lot of people really 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 don't like her a lot of people voted for trump just because they wanted to vote against uh, against hillary clinton and but the people around her think that she's wonderful and that she's universally beloved except for these you know crazy right wingers but she's not so i i wouldn't put a lot of stock in joe biden's potential but if the democratic party does that they might still win and that would be devastating not perhaps as devastating as having donald trump win but Uh, uh, Democrats eking out a a narrow victory in 2020 with a centrist candidate like Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg. I call him Biden-jig because he's really like a jiggier version of Joe Biden. they they're going to say okay we have to instantly compromise with the Dem- with the republicans we, we barely won this election we have to reach across the aisle but the republicans what the republicans want are universally horrible things and if and democrats and obama was like this too are overly inclined to uh, pre uh, concede obama did not start saying I'm going to fight for single-payer health care. He started with the Heritage Foundation uh, health plan that Mitt Romney had passed in Massachusetts, and negotiated down from there with the uh, with the Republicans. So we wound up with Obamacare, which is proving to be far less than. Uh, 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 salubrious for the American people and our general health, and we still have 30 million people who are uninsured and uh, people being devastated by medical bankruptcies and all these other things that never happen in other countries that have single-payer systems. So, personally, I would much prefer to see a Progressive candidate like Bernie Sanders, he's but but there there I mean, <laughs> Mike Gravel is getting into the uh, into the race now, who is very amusing because he's an 88 year old uh, former Alaska senator who is a bomb thrower, and having him at the debates would be very entertaining. So I would recommend people give like a dollar joke to Mike Gravel so that he can make it onto the debate stage and really let the. Uh, the centrists and the corporatists uh, have it with both barrels because he doesn't he's, he's like i'm 88 i don't give a, <laughs> yeah. a wet fart about any of this and i'm gonna speak my mind and so it'll be, it'll be at least entertaining to have him at the debates uh, but I, you know this is a what's going to happen is is hard to say because is are we going to have another election like with hillary clinton where we were supposed to rally around her even though she was deeply deeply flawed because we have to beat donald trump and then uh... and then if all you're doing is running against donald trump that's not inspiring people or are you going to rally around someone like bernie sanders who gets people out to vote who would not have voted otherwise and he is appeals to independence he appeals to fox news viewers even which is you know shocking and horrifying for a lot of democrats but uh... So that that's where I stand, but you know, it's just I'm I'm talking shit here. What do I know? It's you know, it's the. the I enjoy it though
1: because I, I don't get to do this often, and uh, I. All right, what do you
3: think? What do you think about the various candidates? How are you following this, these things?
1: Well, I like to look at the most boring issues like campaign finance and gerrymandering, and I, I I feel like the you know one thing that was illuminating for me about the the 2016 election was how much that. Uh, that election was based on nominations of the Supreme Court, right? And how the Supreme Court shapes so many of these social issues. So if you have you know, Kennedy stepping down, yeah, was it Scalia stepping down? Scalia
3: died, but that Scalia was before. Di- that was right. in 2016. Right. Before, uh, yeah. and,
1: and then, um, and then what's his name coming in? Uh, Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh coming in, and and how. Uh, and Gorsuch who replaced yes, Scalia. Yeah, so you're you're essentially shaping the the Supreme Court for 3 decades to come potentially with people who are very far right or very far left and and how much uh, how many social issues are dependent on votes from the Supreme Court. Yeah, it's basically right?
3: the, every, everything is going to ultimately come down to the you know 5 to 4 votes potentially in the Supreme Court and it's absolutely true unless and this is the kind of thing that people don't talk about because w- when Republicans come into office they are—they're uh, balls of the wall, hell bent for leather. They don't care. We talked about this earlier. all They don't care about norms, social norms. We'll get rid of the filibuster if we have to. We'll do whatever we have to do. To—we're uh, to, gonna get rid of the blue checks so that you, you can't uh, object to uh judges being appointed from your state there are various uh you know checks and balances within the system that uh don't allow the majority to run roughshod over the minority especially in the senate anyway and they are just like forget it we we don't we're in the minority majority we don't we don't want those anymore so we're going to get rid of them and democrats uh, aren't like that if democrats were and, and the problem is really because the Democrats and the Republicans, they actually do agree on a lot of things and because they have a lot of the same donors, as you talk about the problem with money in politics. And they, what the Democrats should be saying is, look, if we get elected, we're going, to, we're going to stack the Supreme Court, we're going to nominate four or five more judges, justices to the Supreme Court, which is perfectly legal. It's hard to get done because you have to get it through a Congress, but uh, Franklin Roosevelt was going to do it. And... You know, he, he wound up being unsuccessful but just the threat of doing that made his opponents fall in line and they had to concede but Democrats don't do that because the, the sad reality is a lot of Democrats don't actually want to achieve massive you know the kind of social change that we need in this country and they are really happy with the status quo Nancy Pelosi as the Speaker of the House she calls herself a progressive but she has made it clear that she is not even going to allow Medicare for All to be uh, you know, it's just pro forma that they're even going to have it, uh, a d- debate on it now. Uh, she's not. She's not a progressive. She's not genuinely interested in the kind of social change that we need to. I mean, these these are not. <laughs> we have five to ten years for climate change before it's catastrophic, and so we we don't have time for uh, uh, for uh, playing patty cake with the Republicans. And so, if if you're not, I mean, Joe Biden. Hillary Clinton wasn't. She was. Hillary Clinton was a big supporter of fracking. There, there was no one. There was no anti-fracking candidate to vote for in the 2016 election. There was no candidate to vote for in 2016 who wanted to get money out of politics. The, uh, of the two, Donald Trump had said more about it than Hillary Clinton had. And of course, he was full of shit. But he, he at least was talking about it. He at least admitted that up on stage, these guys all don't get, wanted money from me. And, and I gave it to them because I wanted them to do my due favors for me. And so people saw that and said, well, at least Donald Trump is talking about it. And, I mean, money in politics is, I mean, as, I'm interested to know your take on this because it's one of these systemic problems that is under current, the current system we're operating under, it's insoluble because you have your elected officials who gained office under the current system. You're asking them to change the system that made them successful voluntarily. So, they they collect all the money from the donors. They do the donors' bidding. The donors help them get reelected, and the cycle continues. And nothing happens no change happens. So, how do you how do you think is the best way to make that happen?
1: Well, I did just finish the podcast series another way, which is Lawrence Lessig's series. It's a I think a ten part series on how we could get money out of politics, and he has. Uh, one of his solutions would be to get a new speaker for the House that makes uh, campaign finance a priority. Uh, and then he has this uh, very eloquent way of saying how that would shift the system from the inside. And I can't repeat it because I'm not articulate enough to do that. But I do recommend that everyone check out Another Way by Lawrence Lessig. I think that, um, you know, I'm someone who. Uh, almost gets so overwhelmed by this conversation. I just want to run into a cave and hide. I I think that a lot of people probably feel that same way where it's just so overwhelming uh, and feels so big and, and impossible to change that it's paralyzing. So I personally try and make smaller circles uh, around getting more engaged in local politics. And I think uh, even talking about money in politics in local elections is, is really important. And Uh, I, so I would say that my, my main strategy is just to learn more about what's happening in my city and in my state. Um, and I, so here's a question for you. Do you think that our system would work better if there were more states rights? Or do you think that people would be more involved? Uh, you know, because if we, we all have different opinions on stuff, like, all right, you're, you're into, uh, you know pro choice or whatever and, and, and so you're going to move to California okay you're against it you can move to the state where the, where they're against it like do you, do you think that that would because we have so many people in the United States now would be we be able to get more done if there was less power on the national stage and more in within states
3: uh no but it's you know it's a complicated question obviously right. but the what you would have is you would have stratification and pl- places like Mississippi would become uh, you know, obviously they, they would outlaw abortion and you, you would have greater differentiation among the states. But the point, the, the larger question about if you're just going to talk about the abortion issue is that that is, as it currently stands, a constitutionally guaranteed right. And so you have to have the federal government to enforce that. And the federal government is the last uh, 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 the the bulwark against the imposition of uh, majority rule r- running roughshod over the rights of the minority. And so at the end of the Civil War, we had reconstruction and the, the, uh, the end of slavery and the, the federal government had to have troops throughout the South to enforce the, 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 you know, the end of slavery and to uh, uh, upend that system. And at the the end of reconstruction when the federal government agreed to remove troops from the south that's what allowed jim crow i mean there were there were black legislators national legislators you know uh in during reconstruction and there was a real you know hope for uh, you know real social change dramatic social change and with the removal in 1876 i think of the Federal troops after Rutherford B. Hayes won the uh, presidential election, or was given the president He agreed. I think, uh, I, my history is a little sketchy, but he was running against Samuel Tilden, and there was a dispute. It was a very close election, and uh, Hayes said, "You give me the presidency, and I will remove federal troops from the South." And so that was the the tacit agreement. The federal troops were removed, and that allowed Jim Crow to be established in the South. And so, and much like then in the civil rights era, when uh, you uh, black people were, you know, we're integrating the schools. It, it was federal. It had to be. You know, John Kennedy had to send in federal troops, and so without that, uh, that last uh, stopgap to uh, keep individual states from uh, running Russia to over uh, our individual rights, the, you know, states' rights is not going to be a. a, a, a that's that's a way so- of. Of uh, hurting minorities and uh, m- imposing majority rule, and n- then of uh, people's rights being, uh, you know, stepped on. So
1: wh- why? What's the? Uh, uh, so you believe that if states had more rights, they would not be more representative of
3: individual rights. They would not respect. They would not individual respect rights individual rights, the, rights as, much,
1: as much as uh, uh, national politics why wh- is, well, they're, requ- or, or is, they're required
3: to because we have because a, of the a, constitution? A, a constitution we have a, a republic instead of a, a you know it's not a you'll, you'll hear people say well we don't have a doctor democracy it's a republic and what a constitutional republic means is not just majority rule there are certain rights we hold we find in inal- inalienable rights and those as things times change we change what we believe to be inalienable rights and so you know, the uh, the founders did not think that gay marriage was an inalienable right, but now that's in the now it's it's a constitutionally guaranteed because the Supreme Court has said so that you have a guaranteed right to uh, to marry whoever you want, and if you weaken the federal government, there are a lot of states that are going to say no, not not here in Kentucky, not here in Alabama or whatever, and uh, so that's that's why you need the the federal guarantee. I don't know who's. Who's, I mean you, you but th-
1: is that representative of the people in those states do more people in in those states believe that gay marriage should not be allowed and uh, I'm just playing devil's advocate should it not be allowed if more people believe that right or, so that's
3: you know the the that's a fundamental question that that's why we have uh, the, the difference between just what the majority of people believe in and what we as a Nation believe are fundamental rights that are inalienable. They're not. You can't vote on that. Right. You don't get to vote to say that you know black people can't live in certain areas. You don't get to vote to say that uh, gay people can't can't get married. These are the things that we say. You, there's no voting on this because everybody has to be granted these rights. And if you try to stop them, we are going to force you. And a lot of. I mean, look, <laughs> but that's what slavery was. You know, states' rights. Right. Uh, we, we believe in states' rights. States' rights to do what? To keep slaves. It was, you know, it was not this. This, this <laughs> the belief wasn't in this this vague notion of states' rights and why states should be superior to the federal government. It was because they wanted to keep slaves. So, the and and the because we as a society, as a nation, have decided that slavery was wrong. No, you can't. I mean, we obviously we fought a civil war over it. But n- n- to a more current example would be gay marriage, and or even recently uh, uh, people having you know gay sex was against the law and it was decided by the supreme court that you can't you can't arrest somebody for having sex with somebody that you don't want them to have sex with and that was not the case 30 40 50 years ago um, so but if you if you're going to grant more power to the states then they're going to they're going to reimpose those and, and it, it, it codifies uh, racism. They say, well, we're going to have racist laws, and the federal government says, no, you can't. And if you remove the federal government from the equation, then they're going to back back to having... I mean, that's what's happened with... I mean, the federal government isn't always a great guarantee, because we had the, the, the Voting Rights Act, and it required that any changes to voting rights that were made by certain states or part of the uh, Confederacy had to be approved by the federal government. And uh, then... Uh, Justice Roberts and the Supreme Court struck that down and said, we don't need that anymore. We're, we're perfectly, everyone's, they're going to be fair. They're not going to do that anymore. And the next thing that happened is you have voter ID laws. And in the past, if North Carolina had tried to pass a voter ID law, uh, then the federal government would have said, no, that's discriminatory. You can't do that. But uh, the Roberts court, you know, uh, removed that requirement. And so they were allowed to do it. So that's, I mean, that's what you get with states' rights. Uh, uh, they the majority Im- imposing their will on the minority in areas that we consider to be, or ha- uh, as a nation we have traditionally considered or have come to believe are inalienable rights. Right,
1: right. Uh, great explanation. Um, and I, and I also <laughs> didn't mean to sidestep your uh, question around uh, campaign finance. I just def- Listen, as, I guess, as I said, I, def- I defer to Lawrence Lessig. Quite if a I bit can on talk that.
3: about the Rutherford B. Hayes administration, you know, I just I, I can't I can't stop talking about it. Right. <laughs> right. I'm a haze head.
1: So do you have thoughts on campaign finance uh, specifically around states? Because we, we talk about campaign finance more on the national level. Do you think that it would be more effective to shine the spotlight more on, on the financing of elections within states? Uh, I don't know. As, uh, I mean, I know that the... Or, or, or even just more uh, more manageable to for people to feel like they can have... Uh, that it wouldn't just be a kind of a, a pebble into
3: a, an ocean well there um, are those who believe that the problem isn't necessarily money in politics but that it's hidden and it's mm. dark money and we don't know who's funding whom and uh richard ogetta is a candidate for congress in west virginia who was this sort of firebrand this guy, very entertaining guy and he unfortunately lost to a, a standard republican uh, but he he you know, gained like 30 points on his the the previous or whatever Donald Trump had done, and uh, but he he was he suggested that uh, 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 politicians much like police should wear body cameras for when they meet with lobbyists. All right. And I think he's joking, but the the idea that that sunlight, you know, that exposing who is paying for whom, that will do wonders to affect the system and affect positive change. I'm skeptical about that because. I, <laughs> People don't pay that much attention. You know, people have—they have their lives to lead. They're not—they're—you know—they don't care the discussion about whether states' rights are, is going to be a, a, a boon to, uh, uh, you know, progress and individual rights and so on. It's not one that most people are having, because they're—you know—they got to get their kids to school and they got their doctor bills to pay and so on and so forth. So. um... I don't, I don't, I feel like, and plus we're just, you know, there's a fire hose of information coming at us at all times nowadays, and that sort of information, we also, there's a, there's attack on journalism. Journalism is, is dying, I mean, it's, it's really facing serious struggles in this country, and we are dependent on journalism to keep us informed. It's the only profession that is mentioned by name in the constitution for a reason, and, but it's under attack, and it's not Profitable. It tends not to be profitable. So which is why on you know if you if you run MSNBC, it's much you know, MSNBC, when was the last time they broke a story? No, they have talking heads talking about oh Joe Biden's running and let's talk about that for 45 minutes. That's much cheaper than funding an investigation into something like newspapers traditionally do. That's expensive and it's it's hard for them to one solution now we're having is that we have billionaires buy our newspapers. There's a billionaire owns the New York Times. Billionaire owns the uh, the Washington Post. A billionaire owns the Los Angeles Times. Billionaire owns the Chicago Tribune. Uh, don't I, I think you know, you can you can you can have your fact checkers. You have a team of fact checkers going over all of this, right?
1: Yeah, of course. I have my young Jamie right here in the chair, <laughs> invisible um, young Jamie. So
3: that's but you know for those of us who feel like uh, money is part of the problem, that's not you know, an ideal solution, oh, billionaires will solve all of our problems. Elon Musk is not going to save all of us, sadly. Uh, and he's certainly not going to save journalism. But so even if you have a means of exposing these people and say the laws say they have to be public about all of this, that that's going to affect the public judgments about who they elect and who they vote for is hard, uh, you know, hard to, to imagine that's really going to going to be enough. It's, it, you have to make it illegal. You public financing, make it illegal for... Uh, you know, people to give private donations to campaigns, uh, or at least for corporations. and lo- I mean, you can, you can, you know, there are various ways you can <laughs> parse it, but the, I, the current system of unlimited corporate contributions, uh, whether it's just, you know, statewide level or nas- national, uh, is inherently not just flawed, but it, I mean, it's not flawed because it is a good system. It's a perfect system for the people who benefit from it. I mean, a lot of, you know, Bernie Sanders says we have a broken system. We don't have a broken system. We have a, we, I mean, our healthcare system is not broken if the purpose of it is for as many different people along the the, the, the daisy chain of uh, providing care to extract as much money from us as possible. The, that's not a broken system. If You know, the student loans, we have, you know, the student loan debt in this country is astronomical, and if you're objective is to have a healthy society where people lead lives where they are able to, you know, uh, uh, live up to their potential and they can own their own home and they can be free of debt and pass on something to the next generation so they do better than the last, that, yes, it's broken. But if if you have a system where a very slim elite at the top own everything and the vast majority of everyone underneath is kept in perpetual debt, constantly sending money up and filling the, the pockets of that elite, then you have a, a very a high a system that you know th- that there aren't people who are spending their lifetime in debt is a flaw in the system. So <laughs> you keep looking
1: at me like, oh no, this is not good. And I'm um, like, it's like that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where they all look at the ark and their faces <laughs> start melting off. I feel like that's that's well, me it, but, right now. Am
3: I, am I wrong about that? No, like, you no, know,
1: you're you're absolutely right. I'm just too stupid for this conversation. No, but the, <laughs>
3: the system is functioning very well right. to serve certain interests, but. If if you are a person who is drowning in medical debt, or you are working a minimum wage job, or if uh, you have are burdened with you know hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt, you are not one of the people who is uh, the the system is serving. You're one of the functionaries who is serving the system.
1: Right. who Do you still get to write a lot of comedy for <laughs> Young Turks? <laughs> like you, you're so deep into this,
3: you would need it as. Uh, a form of so catharsis at The Young Turks are one of the ways we get around the advertising problem is we have a membership model mm. and so people pay ten dollars a month or some people five dollars a month whatever to be members and they get to various ways of, of accessing our content that people who are not members so if you can watch The Young Turks on YouTube you don't have to pay anything you get but you have to watch ads you know or they have ads on YouTube uh, if you're a member then you can watch you can podcast it you don't have to have any ads and there's also we do a daily uh, post-game, where after the main show, which is two hours, Monday through Friday, the hosts will chit-chat about their lives and other things going on, or maybe they'll talk about other stories they didn't get to or whatever, but it's more personal, and it makes the members who get to enjoy it feel like they're on the inside a little bit, and they get to know what's going on with, like, Anna Kasparian is the, the, the uh, co-host, and she, you know, she talks about, the you know, her whatever her woes with her dog or whatever, you know, they, and, and people love it. You know, they're, they're very fond of it and it's, it's a real great perk. But on Fridays, at the end of the day, the hosts and the crew and everybody, they just want to go home. They don't want to shoot another hour uh, from five to six. So, and this is one of the great things about working at the Young Turks is I just started grabbing... Colleagues of mine and a camera and going and recording something like out on the roof even we wouldn't even use a studio and just talked for like 15-20 minutes or whatever and Then we would post that we would record that earlier in the week and post that as the post game on Friday and that has Become a regular thing. It's an hour now and uh, I shoot it with two of my colleagues who have been at the Young Turks for a long time Who used to be more involved in the uh, on camera, but now they're, they're behind the scenes And so the people who've been around for a long time know them and know me and so But one of the things that I, one of my criticisms of the Young Turks is that we do very little international news, which is a criticism of the, you know, American media in general. We know very little about what's going on in the rest of the world. And uh, so, you know, maybe if there's a bombing in Sri Lanka, we'll cover that. Or if, you know, Vladimir Putin does something noteworthy. But generally speaking, very little. And so... Uh, I had my two colleagues and I would say, let's talk about international news more. And they would agree, and so what I would, the the day before or that day, I would send some stories around, say, hey, let's cover these stories. And then I would get on the show, and I would ask, did you get a chance to read this story? And they'd both be like, no, no, I didn't. So I would talk about the story, and they would be oblivious to it and just sort of sit there while I deliver this story. And then if they have any comments, and they would have comments, but generally speaking, they weren't uh, aware of what was going on. So... Or you know they were no better than having anybody else because they they had no prep for it. So I, I in the spirit of turning lemons into lemonade, I decided to turn it into a, a quiz. So I would take a story about something that happened in the world, and I would make it into a multiple choice quiz and say, okay, in Russia, you know this, you know Vladimir Putin did this A, B, C, or D, and make them guess and turn it into a quiz, and then the audience can play along. But the D answer is always a joke answer. So I you know I, I mean there was a story uh, a couple weeks ago about. Uh, in Iraq, they, they they had made they're making advances in Iraq. Their life is getting back to some semblance of normal. And I so the question was, what is, is happening in Iraq that is the, the this uh, way that people are getting back to living a normal life? And uh, I don't I'm trying to remember, so I have to make up you know answers that are wrong, but and then have also the right answer. So the the correct answer was that the the a lot of the barrier walls that were blast walls that are all over the city separating Shiite and and Sunni neighborhoods are coming down and so that's a positive thing uh, because it you know it it looks like you're living in a war zone which you were and uh, but I had I said oh you know is it that or uh, do they have 24-hour electricity now seven days a week in Baghdad no they don't Uh, or and some other and then I have to have a joke answer and so that you know the question was what are Iraqi people excited about you know the you know this recent development and so then I had those three answers and the D answer was uh, you know, Iraqi Netflix now offering all seven seasons of Gilmore Girls, you know, so it's, it's, so it's, it's, so that is one way that I get to exercise my, uh, uh the, 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 funny bone, as it were. The, right. Yeah, uh, in, and although it can be difficult because this may shock you, but a lot of international stories. Not always great news. <laughs> Not always, think, you know, like, what, what? what's the joke answer about Sri Lanka? There's no, the, you know, so um, it can be, uh, often can be a, a challenge. But I, that's one way that I do it. And I recommend everybody listening to become members of TYT so they can watch the Friday Post game with me and Steve-O and Dave Kohler. Uh, we uh, we uh, refer to ourselves as the Devil's Triangle because it's just a drinking game.
1: Right. You remember? The, you, working, know, you know what that is? No, what the, is the, devil, the Devil's the, Triangle?
3: <laughs> devil's Triangle was from Brett Kavanaugh when he... Uh, he, they found his, his calendars from his high school days, the, the various things that he was going to do. And he would talk, you know, going to have uh, brewskis with squee, you know, like his buddies and the terrible juvenile stuff. But one of the things said devil's triangle and that is a, a reference to a, a, three, a sexual three way. And he, in defending himself, said it's a drinking game. It's just a drinking game. No one has ever heard of Devil's Triangle being a drinking game, but that was his argument uh, to defend himself against the suggestion that his calendar showed that he was engaging in three ways, which might suggest that he was not on the up-and-up about his... Uh, you know his defense uh, of the allegations from, from uh, his former, you know, the student. Or Why classmate. would those two
1: have anything to do with each yeah, other? Yeah,
3: whatever. So, so anyway,
1: the, <laughs> there are three of us, so we go ourselves. Come on, dude, you're you're wearing a Sex at Dawn t-shirt
3: right now. Are you going to talk down about three ways. <laughs> I am not. I do not. No, no, that I'm talking about the the general perception. You know, when he's in right. front of the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee meeting, that's a, their their attitudes about three ways are going to be a little different. And you know, the the scolds in the media,
1: but. Should that even be a part of the conversation?
3: I mean, no, it's preposterous. There, right. I mean, there's much much worse about Brett Kavanaugh right. than that, but it's much more titillating. And it, you know, it. it now we can get into that's a whole different. Sure. <laughs> I mean, the, the whole Supreme Court nominee nominating process, and that they have these hearings and they ask them questions. It's all farce. It's all artifice. It's this. this you know, we're all acting out our roles when everybody knows how they're going to vote already ahead of time, and we go through this this rigmarole, uh, you know, which is just. Because it satisfies, you know, the media gets to, mm. to cover it, and cheaply. And then everybody, you know, the, the senators get to pontificate. Mm. I, I feel like a lot of what our our, our politics... Is just theater anyway. You know, they already know it used to be. You know, you make an impassioned speech, you know, Jimmy Stewart in uh, uh, um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and you, you make an impassioned speech about the people of your hometown and how this is going to affect them. And other senators are like, that's really moving. I'm going to change my vote. That's, you know, that, that doesn't happen. These, the, the donors decide where the vote, you know, who's going to vote for what. And that it's long before anybody's making any speeches. It's an interesting they point know. you
1: made, though, about uh, how those kind of Senate testimonies are cheap media. That it fills airwaves.
3: Oh, and, absolutely! You can yeah. talk about it for hours. You cover it, and then you talk. You cover it for hours, and then you talk about it for hours. And it's another way of doing inexpensive. You know, filling the, the, that news hole inexpensively, where you don't have to cover about you know why people in Flint are still drinking you know lead lead water. Damn, Malcolm. <laughs> You just gave me the red
1: pill I, on this. Uh, I didn't mean this podcast. You
3: know, I, I thought it was going to be light. I was we going to talk about how I love the motherfucker awards and how Chris Ryan, you know, has positive effect on my life, like you had on your life. Yes. You know, and reading Sex of Dawn was so helpful to me, and I appreciate it. And how, and like, you know, talking about when you were on with Chris, and you were, you're know, you talking about how you were, you're finding your purpose in life, and everybody's looking for their purpose in life. And I was going to tell you that my purpose in life was to explain to other people that there's no such thing as having a purpose in life. Right. I had all sorts of stuff I wanted to talk about, and then, but you want blah 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 politics bunny in politics ah, yawn.
1: It's fun for me to do it because I don't get to talk with people
3: who are uh, I, you know in, as
1: in the know as you are I know often. and I,
3: I wish I could share with you my five top bow hunting skills but yeah. I, I have I have you know tips for bow hunting or, or, or uh, spear fishing or you know uh, do, is there any hunting you do from like hanging from a helicopter like, I, I'm just <laughs> like, I'm just imagining most of the people that you know are leading much much more exciting lives than mine.
0: Like uh, the the fact that
3: we're sitting out on my back porch on a Friday afternoon, my back patio in the sun—that's pretty exciting for yeah. me. That's that's a real that's like a this real departure. The sun can come around
1: the corner and I might get burnt. That's extreme. <laughs> just
3: just just outside. I'm outside. Yeah. You know, it's not. Nice. I live in the suburbs. I don't. I, I my. I do very little big wave surfing. Actually, you know, I, I, I thought about how, you know, you're a professional big wave surfer, which is, you know, as far as something you that's on a business card, that's pretty fucking <laughs> amazing. <laughs> and I was thinking, but you know what? I might have a niche as a small wave surfer. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be a professional tiny wave surfer.
1: There's a great uh, coffee mug that, uh, uh, that says, uh, I ride small waves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorites uh man well this is so much fun man we've, we've been going for an hour and a half wow. and uh i uh feel th- thoroughly overwhelmed by the politics in our country uh but i'm happy that i understand it a little bit more and i am uh grateful that you bring a uh a bit of humor to it as well i think that that's just so important as life is short and uh as the great Chris Ryan says, you're gonna die one day, <laughs> or Carsey Blanton, Carsey Blanton says, Blanton, that, yeah. yes, uh, which I think is important perspective to keep, uh, no matter how fucked things. I find
3: seem. it reassuring. Oh yeah. I mean, like, oh Absolutely. thank God, it, you know, people talk about how long or you know how short life is, and I'm just like, I think it's taking forever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Jesus Christ! When's this going to be over? <laughs> like, uh, nobody ever says that when they're stuck in traffic. You know? Right. <laughs> you know, when it's like, oh, it all goes by so fast. Now, when and they're they're stuck in traffic and they've got three kids and one's got a diaper that's exploding and there there's there's no way out. Nobody's like, oh, it's all going by so fast. Right. When did you all grow up so much? No. Uh, but I appreciate talking to you too. I enjoyed. We met for the first time. I haven't seen you. I saw you at the motherfucker awards. Apparently, you don't always wear a tuxedo. But i got to be honest, you look like you were poured into that thing. Thanks. thanks very, very, very nice. Yeah,
1: Chris told me afterwards, he's like, you know, it kind of annoyed me how good I look in a tuxedo.
3: <laughs> yeah, me too, because I asked you guys, I was going, and I emailed you to say, what's the proper attire? And you sent a photo of you at the tuxedo shop in your you know, three-piece. And I'm just like, well, I guess I won't go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if that's the standard, forget it. Uh,
1: we're all playing characters it's That's fun right. to dress up from time to time Malcolm where can people find you uh, the
3: Twitter I'd appreciate it the... if they don't oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah well I mean in addition to the young Turks I do have a, a Twitter page my my humor column was called culture schlock so it was uh, you know a take on culture shock uh, but I got, the, I got that one. there you go well, I'm, I'm, just,
1: I'm not very quick but f- I, I was able to it's <laughs> not for you it's for the audience Get so
3: on um And I'm, yeah, my my Twitter is culture uh, culture with S H L O C K. If people have any interest in, you know, more of this, but in tweet form, then they're going to get that. I, I think I might have actually. Actually, don't go look back over my Twitter because I think a a couple of my comedic reposts were just me repeating tweets that I'd sent in the past couple days, especially anything about Joe Biden. But uh, uh, if they want to follow me, I'm happy to have them. But, you know, they don't have to. There's you know, there's there's not a whole lot to be gained. Yeah, there's you know, I I, I promise nothing. As I I told my wife in our in our wedding vows, I make no promises.
1: (laughs) Oh, man, let's let's finish there. Thank you very much.
3: Thank and. you, Kyle. You know, good luck with next year's uh, motherfucker awards. I'm looking forward to helping out any way I can, and looking forward to attending. And it's going to be another great show.
1: Yeah, I I already feel. Uh pit of anxiety growing in my stomach and we're I think eight eight months away so uh, that's who, how I felt the, the day have, my mother my wife told me would that, have uh, thought, that she was pregnant yeah that is a, a silly <laughs> joke would have turned into, into I'm, an all-encompassing all you and job. Chris
3: meaning you did a great job and I'm very impressed and thanks for involving me in any way and thanks for having me on your podcast
1: thank you that's our show. I'm going to play you out the song called Beautiful by Nate Maingard. He listens to this podcast, and he sent me some music. Uh, so if you're a musician and you want your tunes played at the end of the show, email it to info at kyle.surf. I will link to Nate's band page in the show notes below if you want to listen to more of his music. Uh, and reach out to Malcolm. I'll link to uh, his Twitter in the, in the show notes below if you liked anything he said. And I want you to reach out to me because... I'm lonely, and I need voice memos. Voice memos make me less lonely. Um, Seriously, though, just bust out your phone. Where are you right now? Record like a minute of audio. Be like, hey, what's up? I'm a coal miner in West Virginia digging deep into the crust of the earth, and uh, it's black. It's pitch black. Can't see anything. That'd be an awesome one. Or maybe you're a a wingsuiter about to make your descent off of Half Dome. It's 4 a.m., and escaping the authorities. But before you'd make that jump, send me a little voice memo, info at kyle.surf. Kyle.surf is also where you can sign up for my email list. That's where you can get all the stuff that I love, all those products, because I'm an Amazon affiliate. And you can go to scmedicinals.com or mudwtr.com, type in the code name Kyle10, and get big discounts, big discounts, off of all their products. Um, With that... Thanks, everyone, so much for listening. And I'm going to be coming at you very soon with a new podcast next week with Shane Heath and Paul Joe, the CEO and founders of Mudwater. We had a great conversation, so stay tuned for that. And with that, hope you all have a great day. Get out in the ocean. Give someone a high five. Give someone a big hug. Give them a genuine compliment. Those always work. A specific, genuine compliment will make someone's day. I um, hope you enjoy the song by Nate Maingard called Beautiful. See you guys soon.
2: Walked through woods and through sunlight The river chuckled at our whispered words And fruit fell sticky from my fingers I lost my last chance not to fall in love with you What an entropic thing Awakened from a nightmare And you are beside me it's tropic thing, awakened from a nightmare, you are beside me, it's beautiful.